In the world of tech, there's nothing that gets discussed more than reliability. But when we dig into this technical topic, we find the concepts are much more fundamental. On this weekly podcast, we dig into how the concepts of reliability impact every aspect of our lives. Welcome to the Reliability Room. I'm your host, Emily Arnott, Community Manager here at Blameless. Hello, I'm Emily Arnett, the Community Manager here at Blameless, and we're starting a new show where I'm talking to people across the company and all over this world of reliability about what reliability means to them and how they've encountered it in all different stages of their careers, across their hobbies, and in every aspect of their life. Today, I'm joined by Jake England. Hi, I'm Jake England. I'm a Senior Site Reliability Engineer on the Infrastructure Team here at Blameless. I uh, was introduced to site reliability engineering uh, through Google, which I worked at for four and a half years. And I just fell in love with the world of like learning how to, how to help systems scale and to help teams really just be able to provide a high level of you know, reliable service to wh- whoever there is, it is that they're serving. So, you know, Google is sort of the stalwart, the progenitor of SRE. And I'm sure, you know, a lot of what we understand as SRE was first kind of laid out by Google. But what I'm really interested in today is taking a step further back in your career uh, when you were working with Wizards of the Coast for the Magic the Gathering online program. So probably a lot of our audience is familiar with Magic the Gathering. It's kind of the OG original card game where you collect and build a deck and battle against someone else. And then around like what, like the late 90s, early 2000s, they released this online digital version aptly named Magic the Gathering Online. And its goal is to simulate as accurately as possible actually playing the physical card game, but over your computer. So I think it's a pretty unique piece of software in terms of the challenges it has. Uh, You know, they release hundreds of new cards every year that have to be compatible with it. And then also what its standard is that it has to mirror this game that exists outside of the digital space. And so if it encounters an error, that doesn't always look like a glitch or a crash. It could just be, oh, this card doesn't do the right thing. So I just wanted to pick your brain a little bit, you know, thinking from your SRE perspective now and with your experience being on our SRE team here and in Google, how would you kind of approach something like this? How would you make it reliable and resilient? (laughs) Big question. (laughs) (laughs) You know, just a simple question. No, just a simple question. You know, (laughs) fix MTGO. (laughs) Magic the Gathering and working at Wizards was like I had like a little gig with like a hedge fund for six months out of college, but Magic was really my first time in a solid, like in any kind of substantial software engineering organization. And it was interesting that Wizards often licenses out their intellectual property in terms of Dungeons and Dragons, in terms of Magic the Gathering for, you know, it's that like there's uh, Magic the Gathering on Xbox. And this was around 2010 was when I was working on this. I loved that game on Xbox because it had like these puzzles where it'd be like, here's the game situation and, you know, figure things out. And like, how would you play this to be able to win? And like, those kinds of things were really cool. 
that's Duels of the Planeswalkers. Is that, yes, yeah, that okay. was the one. That's, yes, yeah. <laughs> great memory because I. <laughs> it's been a while. They have so many games now. They all have such generic sounding names. <laughs> absolutely, it can definitely be hard if you're not just like constantly in that world. But yeah, absolutely. And so you know, a lot of those are things that they've licensed out. But Magic Gathering Online, at least at the time that I was working on it, this was something that they were running in house. Mm-hmm. And so that was an interesting thing too because this was also Wizards figuring out how to run an, an engineering org. Um, and there's a lot of challenges that come along with that too. And how to run an engineering org is also a really important part of reliability because mm. especially as, you know, coming from the software engineering side, and this was even before I was introduced to SRE, you know, as I went to college and it was going like, oh, uh, computer programming, and, you know, especially software engineering seems like a really promising career. Mm. And I happened to be at a point <laughs> in my, like uh, in my education there where it was pretty easy for me to pivot from kind of like I was pursuing like st- statistics in the interests of like medical research, especially. Oh, wow. Just in the entire world of like systems-based thinking, um, that there's medicine is such an awesome field for that too, because mm. everything interacts with everything else. And that there's so many different comparisons to be able to draw between those. But I had to take this like intro programming stuff for my statistics degree. And that was the thing that like introduced me to, uh, and actually the intro program at the University of Washington, uh, especially when I was there, was just absolutely fantastic. We had undergraduate TAs and it was so great to get to connect with them because they mm. are the people who were telling me, it's like, look, at, I have this internship and I've got this great job out of college kind of thing, just going from there. But it was also just the sense of community that came out of that too. Like there were just mm. a lot of people that were really interested in this and were sharing their ideas. And you learn pretty quickly that like, you can make a lot of things by yourself, but it's the being able to build something with somebody else and especially to build anything that's going to scale up like what we have at Blameless, what Wizards makes with the Magic Gathering Online. That's not made by one person. I mean, there are some absolutely incredible engineers out there that probably could write, you know, most if not all of this and be able to get something pretty, you know, great, but there's a limit to how much time you have in a day. Mm-hmm. Um, and being able to devote more resources, especially when we get into things like if you're asking about reliability, that there's like the quality assurance and testing and, you know, how do you make sure that things line up? But, you know, you don't operate in a vacuum mm-hmm. and that as much as we focus on software engineering is, you know, it's like we build the software and then we can put it out, you know, either it's running on your computer or it's running on a server somewhere that people can interact with. But there's, you know, people can interact with it and you're probably not just setting it up once and leaving it there. You're probably iterating on this. Mm-hmm. Um, and so, you know, you're constantly making improvements, especially as either you as, you know, the person developing it or one of your users is letting you know, hey, something isn't working quite right. And so one of the biggest, like, mind-blowing things for me was just a appreciating the fact that like you've got to look at this as a socio-technical system. It's not just about the fact that we have software. It's about the fact that there are people interacting with this all the time. And there are better ways than others on being able to manage that. You know, is that if everyone can just like can push out a release whenever they want. In some organizations, that is a great way to break things. But especially over the last 12 years, there's been so much innovation in that space that, you know, there are a lot of places that have continuous integration and continuous deployment now that anytime a dev is ready to launch something, you know, it's often, you know, controlled by like feature flags, but, you know, you can just roll it out to prod now hmm. um, and being able to enable developers to have that kind of quick development cycle. When I've worked as a developer, that is one of the most tremendously satisfying things. And it also just really helps with being able to iterate more quickly. You know, you might have an idea about like how things are supposed to work, but much like a dungeon master in D- Dungeons oh. and Dragons, you know, 
um, but you know, you've got to plan for what you want your story to be. But the second it hits your player characters, the second it hits your users, you might find you had a bunch of, you know, assumptions and expectations that don't really line up with reality. And so mm. being able to just get it out in front of people and be able to get it out into the real world or into pro, you know, whatever it is where it's like, this is the final running state that I wanted in and see how it behaves and be able to iterate on that is such a valuable part of the development process. Mm -hmm. And it's something that like, Dealing with development that skill is not something that you like often get in college. I have no idea what the programs are like now, but it wasn't something that I got exposed to. So like even just like learning to do that was very much a factor of the organizations that I was with that, you know, it's just stuff that I was getting to either learn on the job or, you know, in great situations where I would be able to research and see what are the mm. best practices, you know, for whatever best practice may mean. But like, how are other people solving these kinds of problems? You know, the engineering organization at uh, Wizards of the Coast, you know, this is in uh, Kent over in the Seattle area. And so like, this is right in the backyard of like Microsoft in Redmond, which is just a uh, half an hour north of the drive, but more like two hours with traffic. But so we had a lot of ex-Microsoft people at Wizards, especially in the engineering org. And that we were using a lot of Microsoft products and in the Microsoft ecosystem, which is actually the only time I've like ever developed on Windows. I, oh, you know, there's a whole, you know, there's a realm of people that all their development is on Windows. And it's something mm -hmm. that I've never been particularly comfortable with that, you know, working <laughs> in the OSX and yeah, Unix ecosystems is just like, that's where a lot of my familiarity is. And it's remarkable sometimes is like how much those may not actually transfer over just because of the idiosyncrasies of one particular operating system or environment versus another. Well, my understanding um, is yeah. I don't think MTGO runs on anything besides Windows still. <laughs> which yeah, actually may also be a byproduct of, <laughs> which, um, of that there. Mm -hmm. I think that's probably a byproduct of being so ecosystemic. Yeah, Microsoft-centric, yeah. I really agree with it. I think there's a reason that we often emphasize that it's socio-technical, not technical socio, <laughs> that you really have to consider this human element first, that if you're proposing Absolutely. software, if you're proposing a project that involves multiple teams, involves communication, involves staggered releases and QA and testing, you can't just kind of dismiss that human element. You have to kind of build it up around those people and what will they do and how will they communicate and, you know, what kind of issues can you can run into there? I really Absolutely. like your analogy of it being like a dungeon master. It seems it's, fitting for this, especially for, especially this, for this. Yeah, <laughs> we can cover the whole Wizards of the Coast spectrum here. <laughs> Absolutely. And I mean, it was one of those things that getting there too, is it like, it's one of those places where it's like, I actually get to like walk into that office and like work there, like yeah, on, you yeah. know, on and around Amazing, these things. Right? <laughs> and such, you know, just an incredibly just like passionate group of people and a very tight knit group of people too, that when you're part of that community, especially so like if, there's a lot of competitive players in that space as well. And that oh, was something imagine. else that was really, yeah. I am not a competitive player. <laughs> the, you know, there's kind of like the player archetypes, like Timmy, Johnny, and Spike kind of thing. Uh, there's yeah, a yeah. lot of Spike players, you know, these competitive, <laughs> like, how do you win kind of thing. And I'm very much in the Johnny, Timmy space. Show me the cool, you know, awesome cards, just things to make you go wow. And interesting combos was always kind of my thing. And so it was something in that space where I'm just realizing, I'm playing this game differently than other people mm. are. Then also, you know, Magic the Gathering Online is a really fun space to just be able to explore things in that area as well. It is funny because, you know, as you may be aware, you can say like, I do this a million times. And then mm. you may have some sort of loop that you can do. And you can just kind of, if you could describe what the process would look like, that you can kind of shortcut doing all those things. You know, do you want to interrupt any part of this? Otherwise, you know, I'm going to tap this creature a million times kind of thing. And when you're doing it on Magic the Gathering Online, 
you don't get that level of abstraction you know it's like okay yes, i guess i'm yeah. gonna click this a million times kind of thing which is um, uh, often relevant for competitive play there's certain decks that you can run in paper because you can do this shortcut and say i'm gonna produce 400 billion mana by looping this <laughs> but you certainly can't click 400 billion times in magic the gathering online so that is something that I'm kind of curious about because, you know, the ideal of MTGO is that it should replicate the paper game one-to-one. -one. But of course it can't really. And Absolutely. I think that really kind of speaks to a lot of reliability concepts that it's like, okay, but when is it good enough? Like, when is it that people who want to play Magic can say, yes, this satisfies me, I'm willing to spend money on this. So, Absolutely. you know, I'm, I'm sure in your role, you weren't required to make those decisions and write that policy. But I'm just kind of curious what your perspective is on that. Like, yeah, and so yeah, I, that this, sort of ideal. When do you say, okay, this is probably good enough? Absolutely, and that was a question that I was curious about then, and still find is a very interesting question even now. And, and you know, every org I feel like has their own versions of these challenges, but it may not be necessarily the challenge with Magic. Of course, is the fact is that like there is this existing paper card game, and at the time that I was there, the comprehensive rules was something like 160 pages, and it's only grown in the 12 years since I've been there too. Um, so you know the challenges become even more. Um, but one of the things that I think is absolutely worth uh, just you know discussing in that space though is also how do you make this scale and what is good enough there? Because that is something that I think a lot of forks can relate to. And especially, you know, blameless in a more of a startup capacity versus like Google, who is very well established and has, um, you know, they know what their products are supposed to look like and things there. And when it comes to things like, you know, technical debt, the way that you prioritize like technical debt in a startup versus what you would do at, you know, a very well established and publicly traded company are going to be two different things just because of the mm. resources and time available to you. And so that question of like, what is good enough is just like a constant refrain that I think it's always, it's one of the most valuable questions you can ask because again, at mm. the end of the day, especially time is one of the most valuable resources that you have. I mean, just in general with our lives, but it's, especially if you're in any sort of competitive spaces, you know, the way that you can move and iterate and provide value to your customers, to your users. It doesn't matter really how many bugs there are underneath at the end of the day, if it's acceptable enough to your users. Mm -hmm. And so mm -hmm. there is this fact that, you know, Magic the Gathering Online is trying to replicate this paper card game. But of course, there are going to be limitations just based off of the fact that instead of getting to communicate with another person where you can try to abstract away some of these things, like I tap it a billion times, is that now you're interacting with a computer that's going to be very literal about what you are and aren't allowed to do. And then also is that even in actually in the paper play, one of the things that's kind of amusing is that people make mistakes, mm. you know, is that you maybe you misunderstand the rules or what things mean. And that doesn't happen in Magic the Gathering Online, unless the rules engine itself is what's making the mistake. You are limited to absolute. what you <laughs> Exactly. And so yeah. you have to accept is like, there's always going to be this disparity. And so it's just about how much of that disparity is there and how do you address that? That's a really interesting one, because I can think of cases where MTGO would actually interpret the rules correctly, but in paper play, people had misunderstood some niche interaction for so long that they thought MTGO was wrong. Yes. Um. <laughs> and to that extent that there is this constant iteration going on in research and development as well in terms of how to communicate more clearly with humans and it's part of you know what created the entire if you're familiar with magic the gathering is that especially on the earlier cards that came out because you know this game's been out since like 1993 so it's kind of crazy yeah. to realize that it's almost 30 years now that this has been around and so like 
nothing is going to stay the same for 30 years. And Magic had so many, you know, reimaginings about, you know, there was a Magic 10, um, you know, M10 was this massive rules change. Mm -hmm. um, Mana Burn went away, which was, you know, a fascinating, you know, thing in that space. It completely changed a lot of uh, how the game worked. And so there are these steps where you just have to, where you go, it's time for a change. It's time to do something different. And part of that is also to be able to, you know, allow it to scale when it was just, you know, some people sitting around a Dungeons and Dragons table using their D20s to be able to kind of track their life in this game and in being very much in that world versus now we want to have a much broader appeal. And so we need to figure out how do we engage people and how do we get, especially because when you say there's 160 pages of comprehensive rules, like how do you get people <laughs> to engage with that? Like that's, I don't need to take a college course on this. <laughs> and so there is like just this constant iteration of like, what's good enough for right now? And what is the thing that we need to do to get to that next level? I think that's really fascinating to kind of think of Magic's own tech debt. <laughs> and I really think that's kind of what it was when they do these major rule overhauls and they realize, okay, this will take some adaptation. There's going to be people that are mad, but we have too much kind of spaghetti code in the rules. We have too many weird cards that don't quite work the way they think that we ought to. We have unintuitive stuff like Mana Burn. Let's yes, just and do actually, a big overhaul. <laughs> yes, and so it's the Oracle text is the part that I was trying to get to there. Yes, um, oh, yes that in yes. the beginning, that was not a thing, you know, so you can just write whatever you wanted on the card and, you know, in magic, Which what's written on the card. Out. <laughs> exactly. And you know that there's like the unhinged, you know, the unsets where they just have absolutely ridiculous things like tear this card in half or throw it somewhere. And if it lands on a shoe or, you know, things like uh, that, yes, that are yes. just absolutely <laughs> absurd. Then you realize there's this need to standardize around a particular language, both for understandability for humans, but then also just for consistency with the rules, like when and whenever are very, very important words. It's kind of funny when you think about all the things that end up as keywords in Magic the Gathering, but that every word on those cards is important. Yes. That the way that they're ordered and that slightly different structures can mean different things, uh, both in terms of like things that happen like during your battle phase or after your battle phase or after the first one of your turn. Mm. And <laughs> each one of those is a little bit different to handle. So, you know, as you bring up the question of like, how do you like even test against things here? It is fascinating because one of the absolutely beautiful things about how Oracle text was ideated is that it's almost a programming. And actually, in my mm. consideration, I do think it is a programming language, you know, is that magic is a state based system, you know, it's a state machine, then introducing cards is going to change that state and change the way that things interact. But that at any point, you should be able to kind of pick out where things are and figure out how things are supposed to interact. Mm -hmm. And you end up with the case in magic of like, rules puzzles, like, Chains of Mephistopheles, which is when, like, if you would draw a card, you know, you do something, I think you discard a card instead or something like that. Yeah, it's what like, if you have two of those out? <laughs> then there's also, like, an opalescence and humility. <laughs> <laughs> but, you know, like, opalescence and humility being another oh, fascinating one, you know, is that, yeah. like, here's an enchant that will make everything, like, before, and here's uh, humility, or, you know, that turns enchantments into creatures, and then humility, which removes all abilities from creatures. Well, then, is opalescence going to turn itself into a creature or not? Mm -hmm. And being able to figure out this little loop of <laughs> the chicken and the egg. Which one Absolutely. Takes and so those also, you know, are things you have to be able to address in the code as well. And so getting a really standardized language, but then also, you know, being very clear, this is the reason why Magic the Gathering has layers for continuous effects to be able to just partition out and explain what is supposed to happen in this space. And it is such a blessing to be able to play online because you don't have to understand layers. You'll figure <laughs> it out for you and you can put down opalescence and humility and see exactly what will happen there. But one of the things that was so fascinating about that too is because it was such a programmatic and parsable language is that we're basically were able to apply a bunch of regular expressions on top of it and oh. turn that Oracle text more into code 
And then that's one of the things that is both, you know, helps with being able to maintain parity, but then also just for, it helps for development also, because you may have 20 different cards that all have very similar versions of the same wording and being able to treat them all similarly, instead of having to like implement each one individually. Mm. I mean, that's a scaling, you know, that is less work for your developers. And actually, I remember we, as we asked about adding new cards to the product ah, all the time. Okay, so yes, <laughs> I really do want to cover this adding new cards because I think yes. this is like contains a lot of really good resistance to reliability. So how about we cover that in the next episode? <laughs> that sounds fantastic. Yes. Thank you so much I'm for so joining good. us. Uh, we'll have more discussion on the reliability lessons of magic coming soon. So please check that out. Um, I've been Emily Arnett. I'm Jake, Jake England. England. See you next time. We hope you've enjoyed your time in the reliability room. Everywhere we look, we see the challenges and value of good reliability. But no matter how you prepare, things will go wrong. Orchestrating your team around incident response is key to making a product users can trust. Automate a seamless incident management process with Blameless, the incident response workflow that keeps your communication and response running smoothly even when things go wrong. Visit blameless.com trial to start your free trial today. That's blameless.com slash trial.